0: Okay. So, uh, hey, I want to start off with a little word association game. If you've ever done this before, uh, it's pretty simple. I say a word or a phrase, and you tell me what comes to mind, okay? So uh, let's start with an easy one. There's no right or wrong. It's just what you've come to associate with with this word. So the golden arches, okay? Uh, Sweet. Two can anything be too sweet i don't know jay uh Twitter somebody said trump that's the right answer yeah uh medicine expensive okay uh Michigan <laughs> I put heartbroken uh, okay to t- Christmas interesting responses jesus no uh, Jesus. <laughs> Gosh, nobody can, you're in church, man, I said Jesus, <laughs> don't you have some association when I say Jesus? <laughs> oh, Lord, <laughs> 30 years I've wasted. <laughs> uh, that's okay, I know everybody thinks it's the, there's the, some special answer. Well, I know we, when we talk about Christmas, we, we have all kinds of associations with Christmas, right, and, and most of them are good. In fact, uh, like my, my wife Kathy, every time we sit down at Netflix around Christmas uh, in December, she goes, let's, let's, let's watch a Hallmark Christmas movie. <laughs> They're these happily ever after kind of movies, right? The same C-list actors, you know, just doing different characters and different warmed over stories. But you, you do associate Christmas with certain things, right? Well, the truth is, that's that's not bad, but that's not the whole story. Because the Christmas, we're going to look at the, in the Gospel of Matthew, the very first Christmas narrative introduces something that is super important, but I, I didn't hear anybody say it when I said Christmas. And I doubt it, this idea, this really important idea, will ever come to mind in the average person's thoughts when they hear the word Christmas, and yet it is anchored into the Christmas story, and it goes all the way through the whole narrative of Scripture. And it's this idea that's really important, but it's not something that Americans find you know, warms their hearts. So if you would, uh, if you have a Bible with you, you can open it to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to get the story from Matthew's point of view, but we're also going to get the story from Matthew. Uh, Joseph's perspective. And so if you don't have a Bible, there are paperback Bibles like this under the chair seat in front of you. And uh, we're going to start reading on page 669. I skipped 666 this week, so we're going to 669. Thank you. Starting at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her... Is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah seven fourteen. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So, let's let's look at this and, and kind of unpack it a little bit. Uh, there's a this was a Christmas surprise, if 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 there ever was one. And you know, there's a lot that that Americans, uh, modern, you know, 21st century Americans don't know about. Jewish culture, but when when people uh, were engaged in, in Jewish thinking, they were married, even though they weren't cohabiting and they hadn't sexually consummated the marriage, they were still married. And what a when when a couple was engaged, it was a really big thing. It was it was way bigger than it is to us today. And their culture really valued marriage. And to a degree that, you know, maybe we haven't in a long, long, long time as a culture. Not that we don't value marriage, but I mean, it was something in their culture that was way up there. And so when a a couple was engaged, there was a a ceremony, and then a man, he oftentimes moved and and prepared a home. And then they come back for a a huge ceremony, and their weddings would, would typically be a week long, and... The whole, their whole village would be involved in it. Weddings were just these huge, extravagant things because every couple, what they understood was every couple impacted the whole village in a significant way. And everybody's lives were intertwined, and they appreciated that way that we don't oftentimes. And so when, when Joseph uh, is happily engaged to Mary, finds out that Mary's pregnant, and it's not his baby, a Jewish law uh, ordered their lives. And so this would bring tremendous complications. And there are responsibilities that pregnancy brought that, you know, we understand. But the, the, the law of their relationship with God, the law, we hear this word, the law, in the Old Testament. It was, that was a, a part of what we call the covenant, the old covenant that God made with the Jewish people. So God had a relationship with this group of people called Israel, and they had this covenant, like a, we would think of it as a contract, but it was, a, it was more, uh, it was way bigger and more completely life-enwrapping than just a contract. It governed every area of their lives. It helped them to figure out, you know, who they were in the world. It gave them a sense of identity. Like right now, we're awash in a world that says, you got to figure out who you are. And whoever you want to be, you can be. And what what it's left us with is a tremendous amount of confusion that we wonder, who are we? Well, the Jewish people were a group of people that God picked out and said, I'm going to make you my people. I'm going to show the whole world what it's like to be my people through you. And he picked out a group of people who were a nation of slaves in Egypt. I mean, imagine that. A whole nation, several million people who were slaves in a country, And God said, I'm going to make you my people. They were the lowest people on the social totem pole. And God chose them. And then he, you know, if you know the story of uh, the Exodus and out of Egypt, God uh, went to war for them in a unique way. And then they were freed from Egypt. And then this, this nation who had been in slavery for hundreds of years, I mean, imagine that, what slavery does to people. But imagine a whole nation of people, millions of people enslaved. They had a certain kind of corrupted identity because uh, uh, lifestyles affect your thinking, and your thinking affects lifestyle. And so God made this Jewish people a special people. And then he gave them because he had to shape them into a people who could live and make it in the world. And this covenant that he made with them defined who they were, but it also defined their relationships. You know, we, I, I often say this, like the cross, faith isn't just a vertical thing. Because the two great commandments we were reminded by Jesus are, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And, and they're married together. They're, you can't separate them. That's why how we treat our neighbor is, is important to God because they're made in his image. And so when Joseph found out, you may think it's strange that he, he decided to divorce his wife, the woman who legally was his wife at that point. Why would he do something that cruel? Well, there responsibilities that came with fathering a child. And he wasn't, it wasn't just like an embittered kind of cruel thing. But if someone got someone pregnant, that child is their responsibility, and the person is. And so, this w- it triggered a series of actions. They had kind of a protocol that the law gave them, and it wasn't to humiliate and shame Mary or the, the the woman who got pregnant. It was just to say there were people who had responsibilities, and this allowed for them to take their responsibilities and hel- and held them to account for you know, decisions that they made. And Joseph was kind. It says that he could have publicly like shamed her, brought her out into you know, before the Jewish people and wherever their, their, uh, their community uh, sort of had public decisions made. But he didn't. He wanted to do it privately. And he was doing the right thing. It says he was a righteous man. There's lots of ways if you read translations, there's ways that that, that phrase, he was a righteous man, is translated. He was an honorable man. He was a man that wanted to please God in everything. He was a good man, a noble man. Joseph was really an exemplar person. And so he's thinking about this, and God speaks to him in a dream. And in his dream, an angel comes to him, and we saw what the angel said. Listen, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. In other words, believe Mary. Because if you read the book of Luke it tells this narrative from Mary's point of view where the angel comes to her and says, you know, God wants to bring his Savior into the world and he wants you to be the one that bears this baby. And, and so you hear the whole story from Mary's point of view and now we're hearing it from Joseph's point of view in the book of Matthew. And so here in this story, Joseph is told, believe Mary. And this is a crazy, crazy story, Right? Uh, someone says, I got pregnant, you know, uh, and it was God. <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, Israel's whole history is full of God doing crazy things, but that's the craziest story that anybody ever came up with. And Joseph's going, nah, I don't know. I can't buy this. I'm, you know, I'm, I mean, my whole people's history is God breaking into the world and doing unusual things, but never heard of this one before. So the angel convinces him to reconsider what he's doing, and then... Now, you know, I, I've told you this before, when you read Bible stories, stories, uh, this, this you know, what is it, 18 to 25, there's, there's four paragraphs here, you know, a couple of hundred words, it's describing a story that probably went on for a little period of time, this probably didn't happen in one day, it probably took a narrative of several weeks and compressed it, so we can read it, there's some brevity, that's what good editors do, and so, Joseph is going, wow, if I don't marry am I, is this just me? Is this just me not wanting to do something that's really hard, divorce Mary? Because you know, in his heart, he had to want this thing to work out. This was hard for him to suddenly decide to break a betrothal and go back to life as he had lived it before Mary came into his life. I mean, this was a complication that he didn't want. And he's wrestling with this, and then he's, he remembers, because you have to understand that the Jewish people, the 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 covenant, the law, ordered their lives. It wasn't optional the way a lot of people today look at, you know, Jesus' teaching the gospel. We just tend to, a lot of people, unfortunately, think, gosh, it's just optional, <laughs> If I like it, I do it. If I don't, or it's inconvenient or hard, I I don't do it because I'm an American. This is what Americans do. We believe in freedom. And, you know, Joseph didn't think that way. The Jewish people didn't think, even if they weren't perfect, they knew that the law was supposed to order every area of their life. And so he hears this story. I mean, he, he has this experience with an angel, and then he remembers The prophet Isaiah talked about the Messiah, and all the Jewish people at the time, at this time in the world, (coughs) they were waiting for the Messiah, the one who was going to come and save them from the oppression that they were experiencing. Jewish people are always, I mean, they were a little nation in the middle of the crossroads of the ancient world, and they were constantly being conquered, and they were constantly under threat, and they were praying. Like if you go to the, to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem now, one of the things that Orthodox Jewish people do there is they pray for the Messiah to come because they don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They're praying for God to come and bring peace in their land because you know if you know the Middle East now, it's full of strife. It was full of strife back then. They were waiting for the Messiah. And so what, what gave Joseph comfort that this dream he had was from God, was it agreed with what the scripture said. And those two things, you know, every Jewish person believed, my life has to be ordered by God, but God could speak to people directly. But when God speaks to us directly, it will always be confirmed by what he spoke to us objectively through his word. So, Joseph, suddenly, he has this whole, wow. And this is a point, this this is one of the takeaway points. God was in this situation. I guarantee you when it when when someone came to Joseph and said, "Did you notice that little bump? It, you know, in Mary's midsection, we call that a baby bump." And he goes, "Oh, hold on a second. So would you say that again? Mary's pregnant, Joseph? What? Not my baby? Oh no, you know, all of a sudden, whoosh, he is just His world's turning upside down. And when your world is upside down, you tend to immediately think, God is not here. But the Christmas story, as we have been taught over and over and over, is a story of how God breaks into the world. God was in the middle of this. And God is assuring Joseph, Joseph, I'm with you in this. But what he was inviting Joseph to do, this is the thing about Christmas, this is the thing that this story introduces that isn't often appreciated as essential to a life of faith, because God was asking Joseph to—he was inviting him into what we call self-denial. And when we think of Christmas, we don't think of self-denial. Uh, when I was when I was reading this passage and thinking, "What's this passage about?" Because I thought this would be a good passage for Christmas to you know to consider. Anything in Scripture is good to read, but. When you're, you're in the Advent season, the, the time you're celebrating Christ's birth, there are passages that, that directly speak to that. And I was reading this and I thought, wow, I never saw this before. This is a hard thing that God was inviting Joseph in. This sounded like something that someone would make up. This, that, this, this, this isn't the way we think about Christmas at all and the Christmas story. And so Joseph realizes God's in this situation and he counts the cost of doing what God said. Because think for a second of, of this whole story is about God inviting Joseph first, ultimately, into something better than he thought. But to get to that better, he had to step into self-denial. And so first, Joseph's well-laid plans for a happy marriage get derailed because his, his fiance is pregnant. And the law says to do this, this, this. And so he has to wrestle with that. Do I want to do that? I mean, can't we just go on? I mean, we'll just, you know, just act like everything's okay. That would have been a real temptation to him. But he was a person who wanted to obey God. So he started thinking of how to do it, but how to do it in a compassionate way, which, again, was a sign of his his godly character. And then the angel comes in the dream, and it it's confirmed by Scripture, and he starts realizing, oh my gosh, this is a whole nother kind of challenge. Because it would have been hard on me, but I could get married again, right? I could have a, my little happily ever after moment. But now I'm being invited to take a woman into my life who's pregnant with a baby that's not mine, and there's going to be a stigma on her and on me, because either people are going to say, I impregnated her, and then that's going to shame me. Or I married a woman who was shamed. It's going to shame me. It's going to follow me and our family and that baby for the rest of their life. My life will never be this life where I'm honored and respected, which is a big. The Jewish culture is what what's called an honor culture. And if you go in the Middle East, you, you might have heard this because most of us are educated about Middle Eastern culture because it's part of the news. But honor was an extremely important concept. And if you're dishonored, you, you live a, a, as a second class at least citizen. And you're ostracized. You're, you know, there's all kinds of opportunities that don't come your way when you're in this situation. And so Joseph had to count the cost to obey God. There was great personal cost. He was going to live with not just for 10 minutes, for the rest of his life. It wasn't going to go away. The stink was never going to go away. And God was saying to him, in effect, I'm in this situation, Joseph. I have something better for you. But to enjoy that better, I'm inviting you into self-denial. If you embrace self-denial for my sake, I will give you a richer, more satisfying life than if you choose some other way. That's a lot to swallow. For any human being. So Joseph surprises, I think he surprised himself, by marrying Mary. Now, the, then, then the self-denial goes on. Because it says he marries her. Then he doesn't have sex with her until the baby's born. And you think, well, why not? He's already crazy. This is, this is just so out there. Why not? Sounds like a crazy religious idea. That doesn't, doesn't religious teach us to hate sex anyway? Right? Sex is bad. No, it doesn't at all. If you want to read a real colorful part of the Bible that talks a lot about sex, read the Song of Solomon. It's a pretty racy part of the Bible. It's, it's very descriptive about desire and body parts and longing and things. And you go, wow, this is in the Bible. God doesn't condemn sex. He doesn't think it's a bad idea he came up with it 's the first command in the Bible. The first command in the Bible is be fruitful. that doesn't mean you know grow a vineyard if you haven't figured that out right so i'm tempted to go down that rabbit trail there I won't, but he doesn't have sex with her, and you go, well, why didn't he do that? Well, if you read what he said what what the prophet said, and Joseph was a man who was conscientious, and you can be conscientious to a fault, or you can be conscientious in a virtuous way, here's what after we had the dream, this is what the passage, with scripture will clarify things for us, it says the virgin will be with child, okay that's their situation, and the virgin will give birth to a son, so Joseph looked at that and said, I gotta be faithful the virgin's supposed to give birth if I have sex with her, she's not a virgin he was being obedient, but that was denying himself, I mean think about that he gets married, he lives in a house with her. I don't know about you, but having an, a woman walking around my house, sometimes unclothed, would be a temptation to me. Was I supposed to say that? It, being married and knowing there's nothing wrong with seeing your wife unclothed and being aroused by that, but knowing I can't gratify us sexually the way we're meant to because God's there's, I'm in this very unique situation. This was a one-time only for all time, thank god th- this was was carried out, right, but put yourself in joseph 's place these stories, what we know about these stories is they have power to inform and shape us when we when we think them through, and then we embrace them and so joseph he discovers that Despite these crazy difficulties, God is actually with them. And this is a happily ever after story. The story of Mary and Joseph is a happily ever after story. They go through some other challenges and hardships, but they're an exemplary couple. And you look at Jesus' life later and some of the temptations and things he faced. And even though he was God in the flesh, he was still human and he was shaped by his family and his upbringing and his culture just like us. But knowing that your dad lived that way, his earthly dad, stepdad, had to have an impact. That, that story had to be told in the family. My, my kids ask us all kinds of things. They want to know. They, uh, uh, we'll, we'll sit around at Thanksgiving or whatever. Dad, tell us about this. Dad, tell us about that. Or we'll be you know having dinner somewhere, and, and they want to hear some part of our family's story that has to do with faith and why we did this. Why did we move here? Why did your mom do this? Why didn't you, mom, do that? And they know it's because of something that, that Jesus was the center of our life, and that shaped all that. And so, embracing self-denial for Jesus' sake always leads to a richer, more fulfilling life. Always. As you can see in the story, not always immediately, and that's the challenging part, but eventually. Now, objection. This sounds like, I mean, self-denial is is not something that you, you read a lot about in magazines when you walk through the checkout line you don't see a lot of articles about self-denial. How self-denial changed my life, right? You just don't see that. You know, the guys in the power suit standing there, self-denial got me to the top, right? It, you just don't hear that. But you know what? You read, now I'm asking you to do this. Go back and read parts of the Bible, and you'll see it was in there. You'll see this is this is core central to faith. So People think that that self-denial is a fool's errand because I'm going to tell you a secret that you you probably don't know. you've, You've experienced it, but you don't know where it comes from. All of us, every human being, has this idea embedded inside us that God is holding out on you, that he's holding the very best stuff out. And the stuff he tells you that you're supposed to do is not the best stuff for you that you're supposed to figure out what's the best to do what you want to do and not what he wants to do, because he's holding out. You can see in the narrative of the Bible, back to our first parents, Adam and Eve, this temptation came to them when they were in the garden. God said, you can do anything you want, but there's one thing you can't do. And the temptation, the tempter came and said to them, that one thing is the best thing. God is holding it out. Go for that. Because if you go for that, then you'll really find out what life's all about. And they foolishly did. And what was interesting in in their lie was, in the lie was, that if you read the narrative, it's like it just stares you in the face. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. They were the only image bearers on the earth. And Satan said to them, if you want to be like God, you need to eat that fruit. And this is what God, this is what the liar always says is, you got to do something to be like God. That's the message of religion. You got to do certain things if you want to be like God. Identity comes as a gift. We don't earn our identity. We are. There's, there's being and then there's doing flows out of that. And it's, when, it's, when it goes the opposite way, you got the wrong idea. And Satan was saying to them, if you really want to be, you need to do this thing. Do your own thing. That, that idea was presented to Joseph. Do what God says. Do your own thing. And that's a lie that's deeply embedded in each one of us. You believe it. You've thought it multiple times. We think God is holding out the best stuff. And if we do what we want or what our culture tells us or some culture tells us or some guru tells us or a friend tells us or our family tells us, or we hear it in a song or see it on a movie screen. Wherever it comes from, we just think God's holding out. He doesn't really have our best. And then we choose to go our own way. And then we think, I won't have to face pain or difficulty if I do what I want. And what doing what we want, unless it aligns with God's good will, will always lead to long-term pain and difficulty. Short-term gain, long-term pain and difficulty. The story of Mary and Joseph shows us they faced short-term difficulty, but they experienced long-term thriving. Their lives were fruitful and beautiful and exemplary, but it was hard in the beginning. And there were moments it was difficult all the way along their life. And, you know, we're not going to read their whole story here today, but there was another young guy that came to Jesus, and he was a spiritually earnest guy. And it's later on in the Gospel of Matthew. I think it's Matthew 18. And we call this, this young man the rich young ruler. He was, a, he was a spiritual leader in Israel. He was wealthy, successful, influential. He came to Jesus. And he, it says he fell on his knees before Jesus. And he said this, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? Hear that again? Something i got to do. Didn't get it. And Jesus said to him, it says he looked at him and he loved him. And he says, you know what the commands say. He started where the young man was. He he, he was really challenging him in a very sophisticated way. He said, what are the commands? Keep the law. And the guy says, I've done it all. And he listed all the commandments of the law that he had kept. And Jesus said, you need one more thing. Go and sell everything you have. Give it away to people that need it. And come follow me and you'll have life. And there's just, life is in me. Life is in what you're looking for will come from your relationship with me. I'll give you everything you need. And it says, he face drooped and he, he said no. And he walked away. And it says Jesus was brokenhearted that this young man believed the lie that we all hear, and that's oftentimes we believe, that God's holding something out from us that we really need. That young man believed, I can't be happy unless I have a lot of stuff. Let's have a lot of stuff. I can't be happy unless I, have, I accumulate a lot of stuff. Because if you have stuff, it gives you other things. If you have enough money, then people will like you. If you have enough money, then you know, doors will open for you. And that may be true, but do they really like you? Or do they dislike you because you have money? And when doors open for you, are they opening for you? Or are they opening for the stuff that you have? And on and on and on. And pretty soon you find out, when you lose that stuff, They don't like you, and the doors don't open for you. you Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Had a cold. This young man, Jesus said, believe that lie. And his disciples come to him and said, we've left everything to follow you. What are we going to get? See, they were wondering at that point. They were thinking, this guy must know something. (laughs) He must know something. Because secretly, everybody thinks that same thing. You've got to have all that stuff or you really won't be fulfilled. And the disciples see this guy who has it. Because you can see, as time goes on, that they are following Jesus because they're really amazed by Jesus. But they're also holding on to the secret thing, like, maybe if we hang around Jesus, like at some point, we can sit on his right hand and his left when he's the boss, right? And, you know, people say that Jesus never seemed to be tempted by sex, Right? Because you don't see like the devil coming along and saying, like in the temptation of the desert, he didn't say, hey, you, know, you want 700 virgins? You want you know, uh, your own harem, whatever? Do you understand when, when Satan tempted Jesus with power, that's what comes with power? That when you have power, you can do whatever you want? That's what people with a lot of power do. They do whatever they want. They have as many women as they want or men as they want. If they're women, they're men, or women, women, men, women, men, men. When you have power, you get what you want. Jesus was tempted in all things like us, and he said no to it. He said no, even though he deserved it. He was going to get that power by going to the cross, not by compromise. And that's the that's the the things that we want. This is what this story tells us: the things that we want are either going to come. The, the things that we want and the things that we need are either going to come. By compromising, or they're going to come by the cross. They're going to come through Jesus and what he offers us, or we're going to find some way of trying to get whatever we can, and then we're going to get heartbreak with it. We're going to get consequences that we didn't expect, the law of unintended consequences. So we have this thing hardwired into us. Now, I'm going longer than I thought. Hold it. So what was it that inspired Joseph to say no to an easier life the one he chose. He chose this life of self-denial. What inspired him? It's in this passage. The gospel is in this passage in this beautiful way because the first thing that Joseph learned was this baby wasn't illegitimate. This baby was God the Savior that he'd been praying for. In fact, the, the, the Bible passage that he read and reflected on said he's your Savior. And Joseph had to B, any thoughtful person in that situation is going to stop and go, wow, Joseph wasn't a man of any means. We know he was a carpenter, which was, you know, lower middle class kind of job, hard working job. This kid wasn't being born into a family of privilege, being born into a family, lower middle class income in an occupied country. This this baby wasn't just God, it wasn't just the Savior, it was God the Savior, and In the story, he was going to face, this baby was going to face significant suffering and hardship. So here's what it told him about God. This is what Joseph, I think, reflecting on this, must have grasped that led to this very surprising decision to deny himself, was that God is choosing to be born into poverty and not privilege. God's choosing humiliation and not honor. God's choosing suffering and... And death, and not power, for me, for us. Because the passage said, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the angel said, he will save his people from their sin. That Joseph had to grasp that the salvation that he needed, that God was going to provide, was going to come through the suffering of this child as he grew into a, a man. And that at great cost, God was saying, I love you, Joseph. I'm willing to deny myself in the most extreme way for you and for everybody. Even the people who are going to humiliate and dishonor Jesus and hurt him and mistreat him. (coughs) That's what changes our hearts. That's the only message that takes a selfish, self-centered heart that all of us have and reshapes it into a heart that trusts and is generous and denies itself. Because I know the reason why any of us can ever deny ourselves, <coughs> we know God has our back. You, thank you. <coughs> Getting a water break here. The story of, of Christmas has the cross embedded in it. The Bible, every story in the Bible has the cross embedded in it, where God says, You mean so much to me that I'm willing to deny myself for you. That's how valuable you are. Before you've done anything to sort of merit it. Because we tend to think, well, some people are worth kind of giving a hand up to and helping. But other people, nah, you know, not so much. But the gospel says that God looks at everybody and says, every one of them are are my children. They're lost and on their own. They've gone their own way. I give my life for them so they can find life in me. Because they'll never find it on their own. We just keep making the same bad decisions. We keep being self-protective instead of vulnerable. And that's what faith is. Faith and trust are the same idea. So in the story, what God was doing is he's saying, Joseph, you're in a mess. I'm coming into that mess, and I'm inviting you to trust me. Because self-denial comes after trust. You understand that? You don't deny yourself and then suddenly trust is birthed in your heart. Trust has to be there before you can can show any kind of virtue. Virtue comes from faith. When we humble ourselves before God and say, God, I need you, just like Joseph had to say here, I need you, then something springs out of our lives when we do that. Something comes that doesn't come from us, it comes from the one that we open our lives up to. Because just like he was breaking into the world in this the, the picture of Jesus being born and the the, the, the body of this young woman, he comes, and, in, and like in Revelation says, he knocks on the door of our hearts and says, I want to come in, and I want to bring my life into your life, and I want to bring life out of you. I want to give you a whole different life, and a lot of, you know, a lot of you have said yes to that whole idea, and and it isn't because you, you turned over a new leaf and became a better person, and then God said, that's the kind of person that My promises are for No. Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for people who were sick and broken and hurting and admitted it and knew it. And as long as you cling to the idea that you can make it happen on your own and you believe that lie that God's holding something back from you, you will just keep going down the same road and keep making the same choices that that turn your life upside down in a bad way. So the gospel says that God came into this and he invites us into something. I'm going to ask you a question. Real simple. This is a narrative... A story that has the power to shape and change everybody's life. But it's a story that's not coercive. And it's a story that's not manipulative. And a story, most importantly, that is, is seeking a, a response from us. But it's a response that's, that's scary. It's calling for trust from us. Now, now you say, but John, didn't you say embracing self-denial for Jesus' sake leads to life? That's fuller and richer? Yeah, I'm saying it. That. That's the point. That's the takeaway. But you can't get there without trust, without simple faith in Jesus. Then you'll choose self-denial. And it's a it's a narrative that is like, gosh, that seems so generous, but it's also incredibly demanding. You understand? I, I was watching uh recently, I was watching the Count of Monte Cristo. How many of you guys have seen the updated version of that? And a a guy gets wronged and he he kind of gets out of the bad situation he's in and becomes very rich, and his whole life is focused on getting revenge. And at a certain point, this woman that he thought had wronged him, uh, you know, appeals to him and just says, why, you know, are you fighting against God? Because he's in prison and God's with him in prison. It's a long story. You'd have to read the book or see the movie. But he learns at a certain point, God really is with me. God has been with me. He's always with me. Will I depend on myself? Will I guard my heart? Will I protect myself? Or will I really let go? And, and trust this God that's coming towards me. Who's in the situation I'm in. And will I embrace what he's calling me to? But you have to embrace him before you can embrace what he's calling you to. So I want to ask you in a moment. I, I think it's, you know, it's timely that, you're, that, that many of us are hearing this particular passage. And, and how I'm expounding it today. Because I think a number of you are facing a situation like Joseph faced. Maybe not quite as dramatic as this, but you're facing a situation where maybe you need to forgive somebody. You're facing a situation dealing with money or sex or power. Because those are those, money, sex, and power are like the, the biggest theaters of our lives. And that's where our character is most shaped, in those three areas. And in all of them, all of the commands of the Bible... When you read the New Testament and it says do this or this or this with respect to money or sex or power, it all grounds them in the grace of God. And it says be generous because Jesus became poor for yourself that you might become rich. And all these commands that call for self-denial reference the self-denial of Jesus and say stand on his self-denial on the cross as your foundation for your life. And then respond to the situation you're in based on that. And to him as this person who's the center of your life now. And he'll meet your need. The temptation will always come to you. Many of you, you're, you're, you're hearing it right now. The temptation is cling on to something, some old bone that gives you some comfort and some meaning because of one bird in a hand is worth two in the bush that God might give you down the line. And you're clinging to a narrative that Joseph was tempted with that the rich young ruler's tempted with, that your family's been tempted with, that everyone in this room has been tempted with. It's a narrative that says, God isn't for you. He's holding something back. you got to do your own thing. And I want you to walk away today knowing that's a lie that's robbing you, that is oppressing you. It will keep oppressing you. And it's a challenge to say, wow, i got to let go of that. But it's so familiar. It's so, it just makes me feel so comforted because I'm in control. And trust means you're you're giving someone power who has the power to hurt you and disappoint you and let you down. But you're saying, I'm going to do it because I believe this story says God is good, like that song we sang. You are good, you are good. That song carried the same message of this whole passage. And the Lord is just knocking on the door of your heart and saying, will you trust me? In one of these areas, money, sex, power, forgiveness, relationships, they're, 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 they're all fraught with temptation to buy this old narrative instead of the gospel narrative. So I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes and bow your heads just for a second. And in your own heart, I'm going to give you a minute of silence. I just In your own heart, I just want you to ask God, God, is there some area of my life I'm distressed about right now that you're in the middle of? You're there. And then consider which way your heart is leaning in terms of how you're going to respond to that area, and just notice that you're probably leaning towards that. I got to do what I want, not what God wants. Which means you're not going to trust Him. You're going to trust yourself. And I want to, after you consider that, and if that's true in your own life, I want you to pray with me. Just take a moment to switch narratives. I'll give you a second to, to wait. Now, before everybody opens their eyes again, what you just to, I want to ask you a question. I want you to respond by raising. How many of you feel like you're in one of those situations, like? Joseph was in, and you know what God wants you to do, but it's a temptation to go in other directions. You to raise your hand. That's here. You face something like this. there's a number of. You. Okay, now here's what I want to ask you to do. Everyone, now you can just open your eyes and just. Look. If if God's inviting you into something hard choice to embrace self denial, I don't want you to focus on the self denial. I want you to focus on trusting Jesus first. And that what's at stake. I'm going to ask you in a second to stand up with me, and we're going to. I'm just going to pray a simple prayer. Now I want you to take in your hands, what's at stake? What you, what what's riding on this decision? That God's call, calling you to trust him with something. I want you to imagine it in your hands, and then we're just going to pray a prayer, and, and as you put it in your hands, you're putting it in his hand, and you're just saying, Jesus, I'm going to trust you with my life, because what you're putting in your hands is your life, and it matters a lot, and this isn't like a, just simple silly thing big deal but I want you to put it in the Lord's hands as you put it in your hand so if you're one of those <coughs>